This morning, once again, we're taking a big picture approach to the book of 2 Samuel. So we're going to be covering quite a large portion of scripture, a number of chapters, actually. And so uh, I sent out an email asking that you would read these chapters. I hope that you were able to do so. If so, it will help a great deal. But uh, we want to try to see how these chapters fit together in the overarching plan of God. We want to focus on a turning point in the book of 2 Samuel. A, A real change takes place after David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, her husband. David's kingship and kingdom starts to go downhill in a very, very difficult way. Remember, God had sent Nathan to the prophet David that painted a very bleak bleak picture for the rest of David's kingship. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan depicts the troubles that were going to be coming to David, his family, his kingship, the nation. First, Nathan relates that there would be no end to the killing and death of David's family members. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting at verse 9, it reads, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now these words. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. There was going to be ongoing deaths, killings, all kinds of intrigue that would be taking place in David's family. We saw the first initial encounter of that when in chapter 13 Absalom kills Amnon. And that's just the beginning. There's going to be all these deaths of David's children that are going to be coming in the chapters that lie ahead. The second element is that David is going to experience severe option to his kingship even from within his own family. 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 11 says, the Lord says, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house that there's going to be rebellion that's going to take place as a result of this sin of David that is going to affect the entire kingship and kingdom, and it will arise out of his own house. We're going to see that that is going to begin to take place this morning as we look at Absalom's rebellion. Absalom being David's own son and rebels and seeks to steal the kingship away from David and After Absalom, we will see others. The third is that David will be publicly humiliated and disgraced. David will be publicly humiliated and disgraced. For in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, it says, And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Second Samuel 12, 12, but you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before Israel and before the sun. So in the remaining chapters of 2 Samuel, we will see all of these prophesied elements being fulfilled. As I mentioned in chapter 13, Absalom, David's son, rises up and kills Amnon, David's other son. This is just the beginning of the deaths that occur. The other elements will be beginning to be fulfilled in the chapters that we are going to consider this morning. And so our theme is that we are going to consider God's words and purposes being fulfilled. God's word and purposes being fulfilled and lessons from that. So first of all, David flees from Absalom's rebellion in fulfillment of the evil that arises from David's own house. Absalom's Rebellion takes place. Last week we saw how the events and circumstances led up to Absalom's seeking to rebel against David. 
And in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13, it reads, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. So David immediately flees Jerusalem for his life. 2 Samuel 15, 14. Then David said to all the servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest we overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So David is now running for his life. Not only does David flee from Jerusalem, but there's an entourage of people that flee with him. That's found in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 15 through 23. Starting at verse 15, And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. I'm going to be jumping over large portions of scripture in order to, to draw these straight lines that are taking place. Among those that flee with David from Jerusalem are the priests. And the priests also bring the Ark of the Covenant seeking God's protection in verse 24 of chapter 15. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Now, David here resists the temptation to treat the ark of the covenant like a good luck charm and <clears throat> instructs the priests to take the ark of the covenant back into the city. David would not repeat the same mistake that we found in 1 Samuel chapter 4, if you can remember all those months back, but in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the children of Israel had taken the Ark of the Covenant out to battle with them, uh, and they lost the Ark of the Covenant. So David says, take the Ark back to the city, verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. David will submit himself to the will of God verses 25 and 26. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. He said, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and the dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. So David resigns himself to the will of God, which is extremely commendable. And though David is trusting in God and resigning himself to God's will, David is not inactive or passive. That doesn't mean that David just sits back now and watches everything take place around him. David takes steps to keep abreast of what is going on in the city in verses 27 through 29. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace, where your two sons Ahamiah is your son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So we want to be talking about God's role this morning. So what is God's role? Well, in this first section, we see that David recognizes that God has a purpose and a will in all the things that are taking place. So what is David going to do? He is going to submit to the will of God. He's going to submit to the will of God. He entrusts himself into God's hands. David is willing to trust in God, a God that David cannot see, and a God that David cannot touch or feel. You see, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. But David knew that the Ark of the Covenant wasn't some kind of magical charm that protected and watched over David. It wasn't the Ark, it was God. The Ark was just a symbol. And he said, take the symbol back to the city where it belongs, where God had expected the Ark to rest and to be there. But just because the Ark was in the city of Jerusalem didn't mean that God wasn't with David and that God wouldn't watch over him and God wouldn't protect him. David trusted in a God that he cannot see and he cannot feel. And so must we. 
For there are many temptations in times of hardship and difficulty when the enemies arise against us, when things are not going well, we want some kind of tangible manifestation of God's presence. We desire that we can touch him. We would love to be able to see him. We would love to have some kind of physical relationship with God, but instead we're to have that by faith. We're to submit ourselves and trust in a sovereign God whose will will be accomplished. But in that trusting himself unto God, David is not inactive, he's not passive, nor should we. There is God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The second section deals with David and Ahithophel. David hears that Ahithophel, who is David's prized counselor, has sided with Absalom. Ahithophel is the most knowledgeable, most insightful uh, advisor that David has. And in this rebellion, Ahithophel sides with Absalom as opposed to siding with David. And David gets that news in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot with his head covered. And the people who were with him covered their heads and they wept, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators of Absalom. Terrible news. The, the best advisor, the best counselor, is now on Ahithophel's side. So what does David do? Answer, David prays that God would work against Ahithophel's advice. Here is an active trust in the Lord. His prayer, verse 31. And it was told David to Hiftel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. O Lord, please don't let the counsel of Ahithophel prosper. Don't let what he says do me in. Now in the narrative, Ahithophel's counsel is sought on two specific occasions. The first occasion is when Absalom first enters into Jerusalem. And Absalom wants to know what his next step should be. He's entered the city, David has fled. A good portion of the people have fled. Now Absalom wants to know what his next move is. What should I do? 2 Samuel 15, 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why do you not go with your friend? So now here is this person that has been sent back, this Hushai, but Hushai is on David's side. Uh, he's going to be a spy. And uh, already, uh, Absalom begins to smell a rat. Uh, why would he do this? In verse 18, And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his will I be, and with him I will remain. Again, not true. He's a spy. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son, as I have served his father, so I will serve you? Now verse 20, then Absalom said to Ithophel, give your counsel, what should we do? Here we are, we're in Jerusalem, what's my next step? Verse 21, Ithophel said to Absalom, go to your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep his, the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stent to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So that's the advice. Go into your father's concubines, have a sexual relationship with them in the front of the entire nation. On this occasion, God does not work against Ahithophel's advice. Rather, Ahithophel's advice is followed, verse 22. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Why was Absalom's advice followed? 
Answer, because he was held in such high regard. Verse 23. Now in those days, the counsel that Hisfel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Hisfel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. It was though he were speaking for God. Now he wasn't, but he was regarded in such high regard that whatever he said seemed to come to pass, whatever advice he gave seemed to be so wise that it was almost like God was speaking. That's the regard that they had for Hisophel. So it's no wonder that Absalom would listen to a Hisophel. But it's important for us to understand. Remember, David had prayed that God would bring Ahithophel's counsel to foolishness. On this occasion, God does not do that. And we need to ask the question, why? Why is this counsel followed? Answer, because this is the will of God. This is what God wants to take place. The advice of going into these concubines in the presence of all Israel is a fulfillment of what Nathan said would happen. Remember 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. So here is this prophecy coming true. You did it secretly, but I will bring this thing to pass before all Israel and before the sun. Now there's a second incident of Ahithophel's advice. Uh, that is, Ahithophel now is going to give advice on how to defeat David, starting at chapter 17, verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. So this is on the very evening of David's fleeing Jerusalem. Absalom says, let me go after him with 12,000 men. Verse 2, I will come upon him while he's weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes back to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. So let me go after him. Let me chase him down. I will kill just David, and all the other people will rally around you. Initially, that advice is well received, verse 4. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and the eyes of the elders of Israel. But... Just to make sure, Absalom seeks Hushai's advice also. Now remember that Hushai is secretly on David's side. Uh, he doesn't want to see David defeated. He wants to see David spared. So verse 5, Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given you is not good. <laughs> On this occasion, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. Down to verse 11. But my counsel is that all Israel should be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you shall go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into the city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and will drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. So Absalom says, excuse me, so Isabel says, let's go after David tonight. Hushai says, that's not a good idea. We don't want to send just a few people. Give us time. Let's get the whole, whole army together. Let's find out where David is. Let's give thought to this, all of which is going to give David time to escape. 
But, he's, but he paints this picture of, of uh, a mass uh, battle that they should enter into. Absalom and his men prefer, prefer the advice of Hushai over the advice of Ahithophel, verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. So they all side with Hushai over opposed to Ahithophel. So the question is, well, why don't they follow the advice of Ahithophel? Remember, he's the guy who speaks, and it's like God speaking. They didn't look for a, a second opinion when asked immediately what was to be done. Ahithophel spoke, they did it. They didn't say, let's consult Hushai. Why on this occasion? Well, just think. Hushai was already suspect. Nevertheless, they listened to Hushai over Hithophel. Again, why? Answer, because this is God's determination. Look at verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Hithophel, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the counsel of Hithophel. That's why. That's why. That's the only reason. Because God had ordained, God had determined that Ahithophel's counsel would be defeated. Remember, David had prayed and said, bring the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. So God made it look like foolishness. It was not the right thing to do. And they follow, they follow the advice of Hushai. Here we see God's sovereign intervention but would not be noticed if the text did not tell us such. But then again, why? Why did he bring Ahithophel's counsel to foolishness? What was God doing? Well, look at the end of verse 14. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good pleasure of Ahithophel, and now here's the reason, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So that the Lord would bring harm upon Absalom. Now stay with me. This is very important, for it's significant what the text does not say. It does not say that Hiphaphel's counsel is rejected because of David's prayer. David wasn't praying for the protection. Excuse me. David was not praying for harm to come to Absalom. He was praying for protection. However, David's prayer will play a role. It does not state that Ahithophel's counsel is rejected in order to protect David. It does not state that it's because God wants to retain David's kingship, although both of those things are true. It states because God is going to bring harm to Absalom. God is going to administer justice for Absalom's killing of Amnon. As we left last week, we emphasized the fact that Amnon should have died. Excuse me, Absalom should have died for killing Amnon, and David wouldn't do anything about it. And I said that we have to trust in a sovereign God who administers justice. Well, it's God's purpose that Absalom is going to die because of what Absalom had done in killing Amnon and now compounded in his rebellion. Absalom is going to be held accountable by God for Absalom's behavior. We see in this portion of scripture that God is a multitasker. God is able to accomplish a myriad of purposes in a single event. Had not the scripture recorded this simple verse, most likely we would be blind to God's purpose and perhaps God's working at all. You see, if, if this verse didn't exist, that said, because God had determined because God had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, if that wasn't said, 
All we would have are the human circumstances to look at. All we would have is the, what appears to be the natural outworking of course's events. My point is, it's difficult to see the hand of God at work in the events and circumstances of life unless you simply trust in a sovereign God whose purposes and desires are fulfilled. They, they come to pass. They come to pass. We have to believe that. That the advice, that the counsel, that governing leaders receive is under God's sovereignty. That he can cause to prosper the counsel that he wants to cause to prosper, and he can overthrow the counsel that he wants to overthrow. And secondly, we don't know the reasons. We don't know the reasons. We would have thought it's because of David's prayer. We would have thought it's because God wants to spare David. We would have thought it's because God wants to maintain the kingship under David. We would not have thought it's because he wants to do harm to Ahithophel. God's purposes are hard to understand. We are all too often blind to them. And that's why we have to live our lives by faith, by faith. There's another important lesson to be learned here. And that's a lesson about faith and about prayer. Because there are groups out there of Christian belief that agonizes over prayer and especially what it is that you pray for and how you pray for it. A name it and claim it theology. And in the name it and claim it theology is you ask for a way and that's what God is going to do. So you better be sure what you ask for and the way that you ask for it. But this passage tells us that God is discerning. God doesn't need our help to know how to rule this world. And when David prayed that Ahithophel's counsel would be turned into foolishness, he didn't have to say, now there's going to be two occasions, God, and in the one time, let Ahithophel's counsel, let that go forward, and in the second time, don't let that one go forward. He didn't have to. God knows what to do. God knows when the counsel needs to go forward. God knows when the counsel has to be overcome, and he does so accordingly. It was good that David prayed. It was good that David prayed. It showed his obedience. It showed his confidence in God. It showed his subjection and wanting God to work. But David didn't know what needed to be done. David didn't know what was taking place. And so the scriptures teach us to cast every care upon him, bring our needs, bring our desires, but leave the outworking into the hands of God. Leave the outworkings in the hands of God. And you don't even need to leave them in the hands of God because they're in the hands of God. He doesn't need your permission. What I'm saying to you is, it's the way we should approach it. It's the way we should understand it. That God rules and oversees our prayers. Brings us to David and Absalom. David stays behind as the troops go out to battle Absalom. They're following Hushai's advice. Verse 1 of chapter 18. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Jeriah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself must also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you should help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. This is what we want to note. Verse 5. 
David gives instructions that Absalom is not to be harmed. Verse 5, the king ordered Joab and said, and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Deal gently. Protect him. Watch over him. Don't let anything happen to Absalom. That's David's position. That's what David says to his commanders. Protect Absalom. They go out to battle, and the battle goes decisively in David's favor, verses 6 through 8. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom falls into the hands of David's men. Verse 9, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Now that is a very odd structure for that sentence. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. You would think it would say that David's servants happened to meet Absalom. Because Absalom is in a passive mode here. It's not that Absalom is moving, it's that David's men are moving. For notice verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. How? Well, as Adam was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Now, here's just an aside, a curiosity, if you will. What happens here? Well, I think the NIV gets it right when it translates, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. When it says that his head got stuck, it doesn't mean that, that his neck got caught into a fork in the, in the trees, but it says the trees were, were thick and so on, and it's his hair. And the word that's used here for head can mean head or hair. So it's a legitimate, it's a legitimate thought. And it puts 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 25 and 26 into a context. Because as you read through... There are these little anecdotes, there are these little asides that seem to have nothing to do with anything, all right? For example, in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, the NIV reads as follows. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year, because it became too heavy for him. So he cut his hair once a year, which meant his hair had a tendency to get long. All right? And the reason he cut it was because it got too heavy for him. His hair got too heavy. <clears throat> he would weigh it out, and it weighed 200 shekels by the royal standard. 200 shekels. Now, how heavy is 200 shekels? We don't know for sure. But if the 200 shekels is the same as the shekels of the sanctuary, it would be six pounds. Six pounds. That's pretty heavy for the, for the cuttings of a hair. Everyone agrees that it's at least three pounds. Three pounds. The point is, Absalom has long, thick hair. And that long, thick hair is going to be his downfall because he's going to get it caught in the branches as he's riding through the woods. Absalom could have been easily captured. He was helpless. So notice the interaction with one of the men in Joab. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 10. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. The man reminded Job of David's instructions, verse 12. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver. I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, 
protect the young man Absalom. David gave you a command. I heard it. It was, protect my son. Man, I'm not going to I'm not going to do anything to Absalom. David is going to shoot me if I would have killed Absalom. Well, Joab won't listen, verses 13 and 14. On the other hand, if I had dealt trustfully against the life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. <laughs> He's just tired of arguing with this guy in verse 15. Uh, uh, and, uh, excuse me, and, and in verse 14, and he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the, in the oak. Verse 15, and ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So what do we find here? Well, first of all, David's instructions are to Joab are disobeyed. Joab's instructions by David are disobeyed. It was no small thing to go against what a king decreed. David said, don't harm Absalom. There was no reason to harm him. They could have easily captured him. They'd grab him and, and cut his hair and pull him down from the tree. They didn't need to kill him. But they kill him. They defy the king's command. Why? Because we were told earlier that it was determined by God to bring harm against Absalom. This is what God wanted. This is what God was planning to achieve. This was God at work. Now having said that, it's incredibly important that we must understand that Joab was not seeking to fulfill the purpose of God. Joab is not trying to do God's bidding here. Joab is not trying to submit himself to God's authority. He's working on revenge, he's working on hatred, and Joab's going to have his own problems that he's going to have to deal with in the future because of a disobedience, etc., etc., etc. So he is not at all trying to serve God. But in the sovereignty of God, even the evil that mankind does ultimately, ultimately serves a, a purpose of God. Now, what is that purpose? Well, That's as varied as, as the days of the year. But the point is that God uses even wicked men to achieve his purposes. Even on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up and said, you by wicked hands have slain the Lord Jesus Christ, ordained before the, by the counsel of God before the foundation of the world. It was God's purpose for Jesus to die, but they were still accountable for having put Jesus to death. It was God's purpose that Absalom would die, but they would still be accountable. Joab would still be accountable for what he had done. The mysteries of God and the activities of men, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It's like Joseph's words to his brothers, if you remember in Genesis, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So too here. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Here we see God's sovereignty even over a king's decrees. David's orders meant nothing when they went against the will of God. What David is unwilling to do, God brings to pass. So now let's look at this last segment, and that is David and Joab. David gets word of Absalom's death, verse 31, and behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. 
The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who up against, against you for evil will be like you, that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Notice how many times he says, my son. One, two, three, four, five, six. I didn't even count them, but there's at least six there. He's referring to his son, and he's weeping over Absalom's death. Joab gets the word that David is mourning the death of Absalom, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 19. And it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. The people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people circle into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Joab confronts David in verses 5 and 6. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that Absalom were alive, and all of us were dead today, then you'd be pleased. He says, what are you mourning? You'd have been happier if everybody else was killed and Absalom was spared. So Joab tells David what to do, verse 7. Now therefore arise, go and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go... Not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. So David does what Joab says in verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel fled every man to his own home. So some observations about this section, and then takeaways for the whole chapter. First, this section. Joab, though he did not listen to David's instructions, and though Joab is responsible for the death of Absalom, Joab has no fear in going into David's presence. He's going with no remorse. In fact, he goes on the attack. He's saying, David, you're wrong, you're wrong. This demonstrates the weakness of David's kingship at this point. David's lost control. He doesn't even have control over the army. That's how weak David has become. This downward spiral in his kingship. But what is more important here is that David's response to his son Absalom's death is so different from David's response to the death of his son with regard to Bathsheba. Remember, the son of Bathsheba is killed, and before that time, he's on his knees begging that God would spare the life of Bathsheba's son. He doesn't. The servants are afraid to tell David that his son has died. They, he realizes something's going on here, and he says, is my son dead? And they say yes. And then they're amazed, because remember what he did? He got up and he worshipped. He worshipped God and what God had done and the purposes that he had received. Now he's not worshiping God. Now he's not comforted. If you can remember months ago when we looked at that passage, he was comforted. He worshiped God. He said, I will go to be with my son. Maybe he realizes that Absalom isn't going to be in God's presence. But there's no comfort here. There's no recognition of the sovereignty of God. 
David says, I wish I would have died in this place. This is a different David than what we had seen before. And it all traces back to the selfishness of David in his sin with Bathsheba and having her husband murdered. You see, these just aren't penalties that are being inflicted by God, but these are the natural outworkings of a person whose character changes, who's been corrupted. David is no longer thinking about the welfare of the people of God. Joab rightly says that David would have been happier if Absalom would have been spared and all these other people would have been killed. A lot of people are killed through this rebellion. Then a lot of it falls at David's feet. And if you remember back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 12, I made a big deal of it at the time. For it characterized David's kingship at that particular point in time in history. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 12, it says, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, David realized that God had made him king for the welfare of the people. But David moved in his thinking from God made him king for the welfare of his people to God had made me king for my welfare. God had made me king so that I could prosper, so I could do with my power whatever I wanted, so I could commit adultery and get away with it, so I could commit murder and get away with it, so that I would exalt my family that would sit on the throne because God said there would be someone from his family that would sit on his throne forever. And so now David just promotes his family regardless of what they do. He's going to protect them at all costs. Even if it means the deaths of innocent people. Because it starts with the innocent death of Uriah. And it just continues, it just continues. David is a changed man. And yet, God is going to be gracious. David doesn't lose his kingdom. David's able to continue on. But we're going to see that God's going to deal with David. That's coming up. We have a sovereign God. His purposes are achieved. I'm not going there yet. But right now, you see, this is a low point. This is David victorious, but not David repentant. This is David victorious, and yet not submitting to the sovereignty of God. Lamenting the death of his son when that son should have died so many, many years earlier. The great takeaways, God's word is indeed fulfilled. God David does have enemies from his own family. The sword does not depart from David's house. And David is publicly humiliated. God does deal with Absalom. God is at work, not just in the lives of individuals or even families, but also an entire nation. The word of God tells us that God establishes rulers and removes rulers. God advances the advice of some and brings others into disfavor. God does and will bring about justice. This is not just a story of how God works in the Old Testament. This is a story of how God works today. You'll be never reminded as you read the news or listen to the news that we have a sovereign God at work. You will hear about all the treachery, you will hear about all the injustices, and you will be encouraged to think of them only from an earthly perspective. And think that this world is out of control, 
and you better jump to it and make things right. But we have a sovereign God. And yes, there are injustices, and yes, there is evil, but God has power over it. And God has purposes and God has reasons that we don't even know. But it's ours to trust him and to believe him and to acknowledge him and to be comforted in this period of time because we know that there is a God greater than the Supreme Court. There's a a God that's greater than the president. There's a God who's greater than the electorate. There's a God who's greater than Russia. There is a God who is greater than all the kingdoms of this world. And he will fulfill his purposes and his plan. That's no excuse for evil. We should never do evil. But evil cannot even overthrow the purposes of God. Be comforted in our God whose word comes to pass. A God you cannot see and a God you cannot touch. Let the Ark of the Covenant rest in Jerusalem. God is with us. God is with you. God is with our nation. God is with our world. Our invisible God is at work. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that indeed you are sovereign, that you are at work, that your purposes are fulfilled. And uh, Lord, we know that there's evil. We know that there's injustice. We know that it's not right. And we know that we should not be participants in evil. But Lord, give us confidence that evil will not prevail. Injustices will not go on forever. And the decisions of mankind, even the decrees of kings, cannot stand under your authority. When David had said, don't let there be any harm come to Ahithophel, even the king couldn't protect him. Oh Lord, give us a new and fresh view of who you are in relation to this world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.